The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Looking forward to a great Wednesday night show here. We have a terrific guest for you. Angelia Shear will be with us. She's known as the UFO Girl. She's got 38 years of experience researching UFOs. She was named the 2019 MUFON Field Investigator of the Year. And she has a new book out that's called UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. We're going to talk about the book. We're also going to talk about her many years of researching this phenomena. She's interviewed thousands of experiencers. Some of those experiencers have witnessed things in the sky that they can't explain, a.k.a. UFOs. Some of them have actually uh, claimed to have been abducted and have extended periods of missing time. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Looking forward to talking about UFOs with Angelia Shear. She's the UFO girl, by the way. 38 years of UFO research under her belt, 2019 MUFON Field Investigator of the Year. And she's got a new book. It's called UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. We're going to be talking about all of that. Her website, by the way, is her name, AngeliaShear.com. Angelia, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's an honor to have you with us tonight. Hey, JV. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. I'm excited to talk to you tonight. Yeah, it's great to have you here, especially with so much going on in the news, it seems, about the phenomena we're going to be talking about tonight. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But first, let's learn a little bit more about you. When did you get started? How did your interest in this topic develop? You know, JV, that's a question so many people ask me, and I was always a little bit of a strange girl. My parents, I was very lucky. Uh, my parents, my dad was a professor at a local university, and, um, you know, he loved space. So he was always open to these things and, you know, studying it. So I was in an environment to be pushed to learn. But, you know, my mom tells a story that when I was like five or six years old, I'm going to date myself, that I was into Star Trek that young. And she'd oh, come wow. downstairs and find me crying. And she'd go, Ange, why are you crying with Star Trek? And I'd say, Mama, I am supposed to be on that ship <laughs> from the time I was a little girl I was just I don't know I was obsessed and I always said God made me UFO girl I was obsessed with life in the universe I just was absolutely positive we were not the only things and so probably um, my dad died when I was young and when I was probably 18 years old you know I just took off with my research and been hot and heavy ever since You know, I just have to add an anecdote here. Uh, I've talked about it on the show before, too. I was um, young, too. I don't remember seeing uh, Star Trek when it was originally being aired. I'm a little too young for that. However, during the 70s, it was on as a rerun all the time, and my mother used to watch it. And there's something so comforting about that show to me still to this day. The theme song actually makes me want to curl up on the couch and take a nap, like, you know, nestled in like I I used to when my mom was sitting there watching the show. That show uh, is probably one of the most important shows even if you aren't interested in UFOs, uh, of um, to come out of the 60s for sure, but I would say in all of television. 
Well, I'm, I feel the same way. I love that show. Uh, there's so many of us that do. When I hear the music, um, for some reason, it almost brings me to tears. And, you know, someone asked me about that a while back, and I said, you know, the only thing I can think of, there was so much hope for humanity in that show, you know, that we would get beyond our petty differences and we'd all be able to work together as a team. I always loved that. You know, it seemed like everybody had each other's back. and It didn't matter, you know, who you were, what color you were, you know, if you were an alien, if you weren't an alien. <laughs> everybody was working together. So I think there was a lot of promise in that show. I think that's a great way to describe it. Now, didn't you have an experience as a young girl as well? Well, I did. Uh, When I was 13 years old, I don't talk about myself too much, but when I was around 13, I was involved in something um, where, believe it or not, uh, someone attempted to kidnap me, and they probably would have murdered me. Oh, man. Because of, I'm going to say, a paranormal event in my life, something interceded and actually saved my life. Um, so, you know, from a young age, um, I was absolutely certain other forces, you know, good forces were around us. You know, uh, I took up meditation when I was young. I probably meditated, you know, close to 40 years now. And so, you know, from the time I was young, I really didn't have to be convinced that other things, you know, existed. I knew they did, uh, at least within myself. And so since I was just so really enamored and obsessed with extraterrestrial life, I kind of took off from the UFO part of it. Um, and that, and my adventures in that have been pretty incredible. I have to say I've been pretty blessed with that. Talk a little bit more about your dad. Uh, he was a biology professor but took an extraordinary interest in the idea of life outside of this planet. Tell me a little bit more about what, you know, his activity was in relationship to that and how he influenced you. Well, when I was younger, one of his buddies was actually, and again, you know, I was pretty young, but one of his buddies was actually uh, in the Air Force. And I know uh, they did some work together. I don't think it was anything, you know, um, extreme on the, the person in the Air Force part. But, you know, he, I do know um, my father did, um, this was interesting, he petitioned for a lot of freedom of information uh, from the government on UFOs, and I have two big cases of paper that were written on the original paper back in the 50s. You can see it's typed with an old typewriter with carbon paper. Oh, wow. Um, and so he did get a lot of documents. Um, you know, he wrote some articles, I think, for some, you know, uh, magazines and things back then. Uh, But he just had an interest on the side, too. And what was interesting, some years ago, um, I knew Stan Friedman. And before he died, gosh, I guess it's been 17 or 18 years ago, we actually did a little work together on some of those documents. He was actually, he wanted to look at them. Um, They were actually doing some matching on the typesetting of those documents. And they were using those. They knew they were authentic, the ones I had. And they were actually able to go back and match some other documents to prove their authenticity. So that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. So the documents you had served as the the, uh, control group, if you will, Um, they were known to be authentic. Therefore, they could use them as a source to try to validate other documents. That's exactly right. That's what Stan was doing. So I was happy to share some of those documents with him. And that's probably been, I don't know, 18 or 20 years ago. Wow. Well, sadly, we lost him, as you know. Um, But what a giant in this particular field and just a a terrific guy. We've had him on the show. We had him on the show several times. And I learned something every single time he was on the program and probably would have continued for another 20 years if he was still with us to do that because he was just a wealth of knowledge. 
That, that's right. We're going to all miss Stan. I actually was with Stan, I don't know, like probably a few years ago, our last time at a conference down in Eureka Springs. So um, he will be missed by all of us a lot. Now, as a biology professor, was your father more interested in the UFO phenomena or just the idea of life on other planets? You know, just from my memory, again, um, he passed away when I was 13. So just from my memories, the UFO phenomena, I believe, you know, that's what I remember the most. Um, and maybe that's why I took off in that direction, although my kind of work has gone in a different direction we can talk about. Uh, but, you know, the UFO, I remember some of the, I've read through just some of the beliefs that I've had in you know, just some of the articles that he wrote, you know, they were um, incidents that he had collected, you know, locally and in this area of different UFO sightings. I love the quote, your quote on your website, which says over 250 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, 100 billion estimated planets. Are we alone? Question mark. Doubtful. Let's talk about those numbers for a second, because they're staggering numbers. They're almost beyond comprehension. And the idea that we would be the only inhabited planet in a sea of planets, basically, uh, is is kind of a little bit arrogant. So talk about those numbers a little bit. Well, you know, that I always, since I was raised in that kind of environment, I was just always astounded. You know, I would, I think... Uh, one thing my my father did teach me, a good scientist is just someone who's very observant. You know, you, you're observant. And I remember thinking as a kid, you know, there was life everywhere. He got me a microscope, you know, when I was young. And I would go down to the creek and grow paramecium. And, you know, I mean, in the microscopic world, there's, you know, there's abundant life. You can't see it without a microscope, but it's there. And I always extrapolated, you know, from the the micro to the macro, you know, I think, you know, what is out there that we can't see? And just like you said, you know, I even understood Drake's equation when I was young, which, which is just a statistical reduction, you know, a possibility of life, you know, out there. And I think if my number, someone will correct me, it still comes down to like 5,000-something planets, you know, the possibility. And so I don't, you know, I was just I was amazed that anyone could think that we were the only thing. I think, look at the life just on this one planet. You know, they found life in volcanic vents, for God's sakes, you know. And um, life is everywhere. It won't be denied. It springs up everywhere. You know, you have a nuclear disaster. In a few years, everything starts to come back again. Um, so I think, good, you know, goodness gracious, in the reaches of almost unlimited space, I always just thought it was ludicrous that we could be the only thing. I mean, I think it would be stranger if we were the only thing. Do you think that we have to maybe adjust our understanding of what life is to maybe broaden the search a little bit? And I mean in an intellectual sense. Well, absolutely. Uh, I think my new book, uh, you know, one of the, I'll tell a story in a minute if you'd like me to, of how my research, I think, differed from a lot of other researchers. And, you know, we, we are kind of like fish in the water. You know, a fish doesn't know they're in water. You know, when you been a certain way as humanity and you perceive reality in a certain way, you don't really question it all. And I remember after this one incident when I was in my mid-20s, I really started to question and go back um, and study human physiology. And I thought, you know, if we want to understand the UFO phenomena, and especially 
some of my specialty, the high strange events that surround these phenomena, you first have to really understand human perception. <laughs> if you don't understand human perception, if you don't understand the, the being that is perceiving the phenomena, you don't even have a hope to understand the phenomena itself. That's a great point. Uh, speaking of life, I, I think it's probably a, a, an important moment here to discuss some of the recent headlines. I just saw a, new, a report and read an article about the f- idea that scientists are now starting to think there might be life on the planet Venus. That is considered to be Earth's twin. It's very close. It's, it's uh, you know, obviously the second planet from the sun. We're the third. Mars is the fourth. But that starts to, uh, that starts to change the paradigm a little bit, doesn't it? Well, I think everything has been changed. And, you know, you know, I've been doing this a long time, just like you pointed out. And, you know, all of us old-time boots-on-the-ground researchers, we've kind of had our heyday to kind of laugh and go, hey, we told you so. Um, you know, after the government's come forward and said, oh, yeah, by the way, we have been studying, you know, these things all the, you know, all the time. And, you know, I told, I, in my lectures, I say, guys, you don't realize how groundbreaking it is for that, those announcements to come out, for them to actually allow a pilot to go on Tucker Carlson and talk about his sighting and release a video. Yeah. That is extraordinary. I mean, that truly is soft disclosure, I mean, that we're seeing there. So, you know, if that's been withheld from us from all these years, you know, what else has been withheld from us? And, you know, some of these stories about, you know, there's nothing on these planets. Well, you know, every everyone should question everything. So probably nothing. Again, if there's life in the vents, volcanic vents, sulfur, you know, yeah. I mean, life, you know, I, I say life won't be denied. It may be different life than we understand it instead of carbon-based, silicone-based, some other, you know, situation going on. But I probably, that probably wouldn't surprise me at all. Speaking of the U.S. military and these recent uh, admissions by the federal government that they indeed not only have been paying attention to this stuff, but actually have footage. And I think the Tic Tac incident, I think that was actually that footage was taken in 2004. But even more recently, the uh, Navy pilot who um, uh, filmed that and was involved in that incident, uh, Commander David Fravor, said he actually believed it was an act of war. What are your thoughts on that? You know, um, I think any opinion that I would have would be, you know, pure speculation. But I don't. I just don't go in that direction. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're pretty young. At least our technology is pretty young. Yeah. I, you know, there is so much evidence that these things have been visiting us for a long time. I went to a brilliant lecture years ago, Stanford University. Um, I remember the professor. I think his name was Zimmerman. He did it. UFOs in art history. And there were, you know, these unbelievable Renaissance paintings, you know, with Mother Mary. And, you know, there's a little UFO hovering and, the, you know, the shepherd is shielding his eyes. So, you know, these things go a long way back. And I always say, you know, if you're going to start a war, why wait till someone has any even nuclear technology? I mean, you know, why not take advantage of a young civilization? So I just... I really just don't go in that direction. I mean, you know, some of this technology that, you know, people have reported, it would be like me trying to chase an F-16 on a trot with a tricycle. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, if they really wanted to do some damage, I think we would know that by now. 
at least blatant damage. So do you, and I, and I know this is speculation, but if anybody has a, has an opinion, you, you have to have a more expert opinion than anyone else I can think of. Do you, is it your opinion that um, maybe the, the air uh, Navy pilot was misinterpreting the actions of the, of the UFO? You know, I can't, I wasn't there. You know, my grandfather picked up the slack and raised me. He was actually a Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel in the army and, uh, and attorney, and I really respected him. And so, you know, I have kind of this background that, you know, just the facts, please. And, you know, without me sitting in the seat of that cockpit yeah. and, you know, yeah. being from his perspective, you know, I really hesitate to say, you know, that would, I think that wouldn't be fair. You know, maybe the object, you know, did something, you know, we all have instincts and, you know, maybe it was a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, again, sometimes that doesn't mean war, you know, that kind of thing. I think they could have probably taken him out if that were true. Now, it's my understanding that this video footage was not supposed to be released. It was leaked out. Uh, it created quite a stir when it was leaked out, and the military denied it for quite some time, finally came around and said, yes, this is actual footage of a of a, of a, a, a flying object that we can't identify. We can't explain the movements of this object. We cannot uh, determine its origin. Uh, and that was kind of the chronology of this, and... As you said, this kind of sounds to me like soft disclosure. Well, I have to go with that. You know, years ago, um, it's funny to me. I'll share something. Years ago, my mail was opened and my phones were tapped, back when you could actually tell when your phones were tapped. Really? And I remember, you know, it was a letter that I had that had literally been cut open and taped back together, and it said, opened by the U.S. Postal Service. Well, I made an appointment, you know, because I'm gregarious with the postmaster, and I took it down there, and I said, you know, why do you guys open this? And he looked at me, I'll never forget, a long time ago. He said, honey, we didn't open that. And then, you know, after that, I had an incident where I had a report about um, an A-10 aircraft missing. So I actually called um, information and got the number for Cheyenne Mountain. And I called Cheyenne Mountain, and this man answered the phone, and he identified himself, and I identified myself. And I said, I want to know if we're on DEFCON 3 or whatever. And he said, how did you get this number? And I said, I got it from information. <laughs> he goes, no, you didn't. I said, sir, are you calling me a liar? I said, I'm not a liar. I told you I got it from information. I'm a U.S. citizen. I think I have a right to know if we're on DEFCON 3 or whatever. And he, you know, he seemed really shocked. And he then, of course, he directed me to the public number. And, of course, the next day, guess what? That number I had was disconnected. Wow. And, you know, the public desk said, of course, nothing. Well, after that, my phone... You know, I could tell, and it was funny to me because, of course, if this wasn't real, why would they care about me? You know, I don't think I know enough to be dangerous, as, right. you know, as they would say. And so it got to be kind of a joke. You know, I'd, I'd almost hear these guys, you know, and you know how you can feel something even through the phone. And I got to the point where I'd go, hey, boys, what are y'all doing today? You could almost hear them laugh. And i go, I'm a smart girl. I just want a job. And, you know, nothing happened, you know, nothing happened bad. But I go back to that, that, you know, back then, that was a long time ago, if they could kind of check in on me and see what I was doing, you better believe if this thing came out, like you said, they wanted it to come out Mm. or or it would be squashed. Yeah. Yeah. Like it has had been for so many years. Tell me, though, who do you who in the government was monitoring you tapping you which was it military what do you think oh yeah i have no idea you know again there's all kinds of you know it's all of us have learned there's all kinds of black budget 
situations going on. And again, I, I could speculate, but I really don't have a clue. Nothing really bad happened from it. But I do know I had a period that, you know, I was pretty sure that, you know, somebody was kind of checking in on what I was doing. So, When did you start researching? It's, it's one thing to be curious and to be looking at the skies and, and maybe reading and, and exploring a little bit. But uh, then to take that to actual serious researching, which you've done, when did that happen for you? Well, I probably started when I was 18, meaning um, I probably read three or four books a month um, for, I don't know, 38 years. I, you know, this is, you know, I have an MBA and I'm an ex-cardiac nurse, but I was always learning. And my UFO research has educated me in some incredible way because it's taken me, I'm a hypnotherapist now because I work with people with fragmented memories. But, you know, I had to study, you know, psychology, mathematics, science, uh, trauma, you know, a lot of my witnesses have trauma, philosophy, you know, psychology, religion. Um, you know, I just, I, I was just insatiable on learning. And so, you know, as I kept studying and studying, I thought, you know, I really want to get out and not just read about this, even though I've, I tried to, I've probably exhausted most of the UFO literature and now some of the other cryptid and other um, things because they're all interrelated. But I thought, I want to get out there in the field and, you know, start talking to people. So back then, the best that I could market myself, you know, and get out, I just started talking to people, you know, that were having these experiences. You're going to laugh at this. One method I had, I'll never forget, this was years ago at NTSU, in a local university. They were having a lecture about ET life. And that was before we all had cell phones and all this communication. So I would go to these lectures and sit in the back of the room, and I would just watch who showed up. And, you know, one lecture was just striking to me. There was a farmer in his overalls, and I knew something. I just oh, yeah. I started to get the spider sense, you know. And so I would wait around at these lectures, and actually, you know, you know, I went and talked to him, and I said, listen, you know, I promise his to who I'm in, I just want to talk to you. And this poor farmer had been out plowing his field, and this UFO came down low over him on his, you know, tractor. And he, you know, he's just a little low southern man. You know, that was probably... 30 years ago, and, you know, he had no one to talk to. And, you know, that's yeah. another thing. We can go in so many different directions. You know, the loneliness of having these experiences sometimes. Well, that's that's such a, an important point. Um, I'm not sure if it's changing. Maybe it's changing a little bit, and people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable about coming forward with their stories. But in many ways, people who have these experiences uh, – start to live a life of isolation because they don't feel like they can talk to someone without being ridiculed. Oh, it's horrible. Years ago, things are, are better now. We were, um, my honey and I were having lunch today, and we were, you know, people stop and talk to us all the time. And I said, you know, and we're really living in incredible times. You know, turbulent, but incredible. I think transformation does that. But, you know, 99% of the people I talk to, they know who I am now, and people can't wait to tell me their story. So I, you know, from all the times in the in my life that I've been researching, these have been the most accepted times. You know, the, the problem that you get is I run in those circles. You know, I've surrounded myself yeah. with people from all over the world that are into this. But, you know, for witnesses that say are raised out in the country, or, you know, they're raised in very isolated communities, they truly are isolated. Um, you know, can you imagine having an experience, a UFO sighting, a high strange, what I call a high strange event, and no one will believe you, your spouse, your kids, your pastor, your community. And, 
you know, people can't understand. Sometimes I judge, you know, some of my cases, you know, or, you know, as I'm, as I'm trying to investigate them, sometimes the more high strange ones in the ways that people are traumatized, you know, um, a lot of times if people are just, you know, I don't mean this as an overall broad stroke, but if they're like, yeah, yeah, it's just UFOs, yay, I kind of go, well, maybe they saw something, but it wasn't this high strange event because most of my people that are having these really, you know, intense interactions, they have a lot of trauma around it. And so it's very, it's been heartbreaking. I've never, you know, abandoned any of my witnesses. Um, some I work with, with ye- for years uh, because they're, they're extraordinary. You know, not only have their whole life and their paradigms been changed, but then can you imagine you can't share that with anyone? So um, that's been a big theme in my book and in my research. Um, then I just, you know, I want to provide uh, people a safe place to tell their stories and also sometimes be able to hook them up with other people that are experiencing the same thing. That really has the biggest curative effect that I know of. You know, I know that that's changing, that that um, hesitancy to tell the story when it comes to the ghost side of the paranormal discussion. And a lot of that's due to television shows like the one I was involved with, Ghost Hunters, uh, and other, in, say what you want about the programs themselves, but they they almost made it permissible to have some of these conversations at the dinner table instead of in the back room after dinner. Uh, is that changing at all in the UFO community is, uh, well, from any of this? Well, it is for me, but again, you know, I, I'm pretty gregarious, and I don't care what, you know, someone thinks, <laughs> you know, um, because I just know what I have to do. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, I'm glad you brought up the ghost thing. Um, You know, in my book, the reason I wanted to, how my research changed, I I think it's extraordinarily important that you can't leave out humanity and the way that we perceive. When I was probably 25, I had a case that was extraordinary, and it changed everything. There was about 13, 14 people on a beach, 1030 at night, having a beach party. And at one point, I'll make a long story short, Four of the people started seeing this UFO out of the ocean, very close range, probably two or three. I'll give a visual for my audience, about three, two or three football fields lengthwise out, a couple hundred feet up, maybe 300. Um, and they described the very same thing. The problem was the other 10 people couldn't see it. Really? Um, and I was convinced after that, that incident that those four people could perceive, and this is real science, a greater degree of the electromagnetic spectrum than the other 10, and my research is held for 38 years. Um, you know, I made all these connections. I studied at the Monroe Institute for about 13 years. They studied consciousness, um, and I had this huge epiphany while I was there. Um, people can go to the Monroe Institute and look at it. Um, you know, we're studying the edges of human consciousness. Well, I started having extraordinary events that happened while I was studying there, and they were very similar to altered state experiences that my witnesses were having. And it duh, it dawned on me that, you know, you have to study human perception. And, you know, we always laugh, at least all of us boots on the ground people that, you know, have been doing this research for a long time, that we draw a circle. And it doesn't matter where you come in the circle. If you come in studying UFOs, you eventually get ghostly phenomena and high strange events. If you come in studying ghosts, you eventually get UFOs. If you come in studying Bigfoot or cryptids, then you get UFOs, and then you get ghost phenomena. So I thought, you know, there has to be a connection. Well, there is, and the connection is human perception. 
meaning, you know, I have an analogy. If humanity can perceive, let's say, the possibility of channels, we'll just use it like radio channels, one through ten, most people are only getting one or two. Then you get super sensitive, one, two, three, and five. And then from there you train for it or you develop it. And it really keeps holding because what happens is, you know, I think some of these UFOs are actually in our perceptual reality channels one through two or three. Some are not. Some are off phase, slightly out of visual spectrum. They might be on four or five. Ghostly phenomena show up on six or seven. The grays seem to peek in around channel eight. And you go on in that way. And as I studied human perception, I started seeing this really held. I mean, it held against every case over, you know, 38 years. That's why I wrote my book in the way that I did, because I wanted to really stress that there was a connection with these phenomena, but the connection was the human and their their ability to change their perceptual abilities to some degree. Help us understand the difference between perception and sight. Uh, and I know there's a difference, but what makes the difference in a, in a human able to perceive what we're talking about here versus one that cannot? And it's obviously not a visual thing. No. Well, most people, you know, I say, I say people go out and look at Donald Hoffman's work. He does. He did a TED Talk on uh, human perception that's probably about 15 to 20 minutes long, but it'll be a primer. But pretty much, you know, people think when you open your eyes and you look, you're taking a picture of the world. That's the farthest from the truth. Photons enter your eye, you know, and then it bounces off the retina and it goes into your brain. And your brain is actually reconstructing reality moment by moment by moment. And, you know, I used to work with students in different things, and I go, you know, uh, an educated life, uh, whether it's book learning or experiences, talking, investigating, curiosity, the more experiences you have in your life, the more you put in your database. And the more you have in your database, the richer your recreation of that external reality is, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, again, there's this phenomenon that's kind of an oversimplification, but at least it gives people a different way to start thinking about it. You know, again, we just need external, external. I used to kid some of my comrades, you know, um, in this field. I go, guys, you've been looking at these external facts for 50 years, and in some ways it haven't, hasn't gotten you any closer to the truth. You got some cool pictures here, and you got some video, which is never enough, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, 50% say it's true, 50% say it isn't true. I said, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life arguing over that. I want to go out and talk to real credible people. You know, and I used to say our legal system is predicated on credible witness testimony. Well, if I'm going out talking to witnesses that would be credible in a court of law and they're telling me that, you know, Ange, I went in this bathroom and there was this man standing in there and all of a sudden he turned around and faced the wall and the wall opened up and he walked through it. And this person almost had a nervous breakdown because that happened. Then you better believe, yeah, I'm going to listen. If in a court of law that will put someone into prison, in a court of law that would possibly put you to death and, these, you know, the people I'm talking to have that kind of credibility, why would we not listen? And if they're, you know, really describing these really high strange events, and, we re- and especially when they're, you know, it wasn't just one individual. Over, I probably interviewed 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, I kind of get tickled. The first thing that people say to me, 99.9% of the time, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, which I have compassion on them, mm-hmm. because most people that are really crazy would never say that. Right. 
And then they go in, you know, to tell their story. They go, Inge, I don't want anyone to know who I am. I don't, you know, they're not out to get money. They just want to know what happened to them. Why did this happen? You know, what, you know, this is so out of my reality. So it's it's extraordinary. In JV, what seems to happen, too, in the large, you know, percentage of my witnesses, well, in most, they fall into two categories. Either they're sensitive from birth, and when I say sensitive, I just don't have another word, meaning they're skilled, and they've had this strange phenomena following their whole life only because they can perceive it, or another individual, they haven't had anything happen, they're just going along. One day, they have a close-range UFO sighting or other high-strange event, and it's almost like it this, this phenomena interacts with their physiology and rewrites their neuroanatomy. And now, instead of just channels one through two or three, they're getting one through seven, and all hell breaks loose in their life. Meaning, you know, they saw this UFO, now orbs are flying through their house, and they're having ghostly phenomena, and then they're having cryptid phenomena. And, you know, they have these huge, if they can hang in there, and they really can deal with their fears and, you know, integrate all this new information, first of all, their perceptual abilities increase exponentially, and they kind of transformed into a different world, um, literally, in their perceptual abilities, cognitive, intellectual gains, that kind of thing. So, you know, that's why, you know, this isn't, for me, it's not just, ooh, there's a UFO over there. You know, I think this has a lot of implications for humanity and our place, you know, in the greater universe, as they say. For someone who might not be as skilled at this as you are because they haven't done it at all, Mm-hmm. How? What are the telltale signs that maybe there aren't anything s- specific that you can point to, but that uh, you can tell whether uh, a witness is sincere or not? And I know you've you've kind of mentioned a few. Um, in many cases, if they're willing to come forward and you can see the emotion in their face as they tell the story, that's a sign of them being very very credible. But are there other things that people? exhibit when they're telling well, these stories you know, that give absolutely. you tells? Absolutely. I'm not foolproof. You know, I've been in, uh, as they say, I raise horses and it's not my first radio. You know, you know, sometimes people can fool me, of course. But, you know, I'll talk about Witness J. I love Witness J. Witness J had three and a half hours of missing time. Um, long, you can look at my YouTube channel and look at the basic story. We had a lot of evidence, physical photos. One of the most incredible pieces of evidence is during this missing time, he had left his phone running on video by mistake, and we captured two hours and 20 minutes of the scariest audio you've ever heard. It's just incredible. I've been working on it for four years now. But anyway, you know, one of the signs that happens, and this was classic, is when we did our investigation, and my team and Witness Day, we sat together and we played that audio. He had a post-traumatic stress response to the audio, his pupils dilated, his neck flushed, his hands started shaking and sweating. Whatever happened to him, you cannot fake that kind of physiologic response. And you don't know how many witnesses I talk to on the phone. And, you know, we're going about the case. You know, I tell my witnesses, I go, listen, you're the boss. I ask a lot of questions. But if I ask you a question that you don't feel comfortable answering, you need to tell me to stop. And I usually take my, you know, my first interviews for about an hour because when we start to get into some of these sensitive, you know, points, like um, I'll talk about a witness that called me the other day. She goes, Angie, I was driving home from work. It was in the evening. I saw this bright light. Um, I thought it was the moon. 
Um, she goes, and I pulled over in a cemetery. <laughs> and I went, honey, of all places, why did you pull over in a cemetery? She goes, I really wasn't frightened. But the, the strange thing was, she goes, I pulled over. The next thing I know, I'm closing the car door. She goes, Inch, I didn't remember opening the car door. When she got home, you know, two hours were missing. And when we got to that point in the conversation, she started, her voice started shaking. There was a lot of pauses. I could feel, I could hear and feel her breathing increase. Um, something really happened to her. So we, you know, I backed her down out of it. I said, you know, feel your feet on the ground, sit down. I want you to feel your rear end on the chair. I want you to look around the room. I just grounded her. I said, you're not in that experience anymore. You know, you don't have to go through that. But the point is that there are real physiologic markers, you know, that are very, you know, especially if you've been trained and you've been seeing them, you know, after 38 years, you know, you can tell when someone's having a traumatic response to something. And those are pretty blatant. You know, other, you know, other aspects is that, you know, people don't want anyone to know. Um, they don't want anyone to know their name. You know, why would someone... Well, I'll tell this little story because I get upset over people getting on to people. I'm very protective over my witnesses. I was at a conference and I did a little speech and I can always tell, you know, people that want to talk to me, they're kind of waiting out there. And I noticed this little family. It was a mama and dad, two teenage sons. And I kept watching and I finally, you know, kind of shooed everybody over because I wanted to talk to this. It was the woman I could tell needed to tell me something. And so they came up and I said, man, do you have something to tell me? And the boys were kind of snickering, and, you know, the husband looked like he had a little attitude. Um, I let her tell me what happened. And I said, boys, is this your mother? And they said, yes, ma'am, because it's the South. And I said, has this woman ever lied to you? And they stopped. They said, no, ma'am. I said, are you her husband? He goes, yes, ma'am. I said, has this woman ever lied to you? He goes, no, ma'am. I said, guys, then why in the world would your mother and your wife tell you a story that was not true, so you can make fun of her the rest of her life. Hmm. I said, guys, that's not funny. That phenomena that she's talking about, I've heard it before. It struck one of my friends, and it almost killed him. <laughs> so it seems to me that if your mama has never lied to you, and she's telling you the story, and, you know, you need to believe her. So that that those kind of things right there, these people, they don't want attention. You know, they don't want any notoriety. You just want to know, help, you know, understand what happened to them or at least have someone listen to them about, you know, these high strange events that just came out of nowhere. Thanks for being with me tonight. If you're listening uh, to the podcast version of the program, I encourage you to share it with your friends on social media. Encourage them to subscribe as well. Those numbers are amazing. We were surpassed over a million downloads for the year. For, for from mid January until I guess it was over Labor Day weekend, we surpassed a million downloads. Thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast version of the show and making that possible. That's a significant number, and I'm I'm proud of that, and I'm grateful to all of you. Um, but that's not to say I'm not grateful for the folks listening to the live program as well. That's also very very important. And welcome to everybody who is in our chat rooms too. I do try to pay attention, and if you have a question you want to uh, throw in there for him. Uh, our guest tonight, please feel free to do that. We're talking about UFOs tonight. Angelia Shear is our guest. She's written a book, UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. Angelia, one of the things that you mentioned a couple times already tonight is that your research techniques differ from those of other researchers. Well, go into that in a little bit more de- detail. How do they differ? 
Okay. Um, you know, of course, they're the same as, you know, I try to throw at it every piece of technology, you know, when we go out in the field. I want to, you know, clarify that. We, you know, um, I use every modality at my, you know, <laughs> at, my, at hand that I have. We have FLIR cameras and, you know, field meters and, you know, the whole gamut. But like I said, after telling about that story, you know, with human perception, um, you can't leave that out. So, you know, on top of just studying the external parts of the phenomena, multiple witnesses, single witnesses, that kind of thing, you know, especially when I was young and very poor and didn't have all this great equipment, I did have a steady stream of witnesses. So I just started studying my witnesses. Um, I studied, you know, their their emotional natures, their psychological natures. And, you know, I study, you know, like I said to me, a good scientist is just observation. You know, there were these common denominators that just appeared over and over and over and over again, especially with my witnesses that were having what I called ongoing interactions with this phenomena, meaning, you know, people that were having, you know, repeated UFO encounters, uh, repeated possible abduction, you know, how what was termed abduction uh, scenarios, and then just, you know, general paranormal accounts. So, you know, I kept tabs of my witnesses, and, you know, I didn't lead them. That's what was extraordinary. Um, you know, back in the years when the abduction phenomena was hot and heavy, I remember, uh, you know, just talking with a, a young woman. She was a seamstress, and she was telling about one night when she was 16 years old that she lived in the deep country, I think of Mississippi, and um, this light came into her bedroom, and she woke up, and there was this being standing by her bed, and she was frozen, classic, heard it hundreds of times, and, you know, what was interesting about my witnesses, they're very, you know, people would say, oh, they're imaginal, they're making this up, well, if that's true, they're making up the same story, Yeah. Um, you know, because I would say, oh, that being, you know, I did a test, that being by your bed, he's really tall and has black hair, and she looked at me, and she said, no. He's really short and had these bald and had these big eyes that just stared at me. So, you know, I found that my witnesses were very stalwart in what they told me. You know, the credible witnesses, they didn't change their stories. They might have memories that would come back. But, you know, there was very repeatable patterns psychologically and otherwise. You know, um, there were reports of altered states, which we studied at Monroe, um, so I started to learn, you know, I could learn markers or I could discern markers of when my witnesses were actually describing to me state changes. And people can, you know, kind of look up and do their own research on that. State changes are nothing but what humans, per, you know, uh, we have those all day long. When you fall asleep, that's a state change. If you've ever been in your car, JV, and drove somewhere and then you got there and went, oh, God, I don't remember driving here. Mm-hmm. We've all done yeah. that. <laughs> That's a state change, you know, it's happening all day long. Well, it just seems that this phenomena is, you know, I tell people, humans were really incredible, guys. Everyone listening, you know, everyone wants to put this phenomena elsewhere, but we are responsible for some of it, and I'm sure of it. I remember one time at Monroe, um, you know, only 32 people or so, are, you know, would come, you know, per program around the world, and we, you know, we would all join together, some people with extraordinary abilities. Um, I remember one gentleman, and I saw this with my own eyes, we actually made him take his clothes off down to his underwear because we wanted to make sure there was no sleight of hand. <laughs> he could take a fork, and he would rub the tines of the fork, and and he wouldn't just bend them. Do you know what taffy looks like when it's heated and you twist it? Sure. The tine of the fork would look like that, and he could do it over and over and over. So, 
I, I want to excite my people out there. You know, a lot of these things that are happening to people are exciting. They're transformative events. They're trying to reveal what humans are capable of. And I'm not saying that we're not interacting with other things because we are too. So it's kind of a twofold thing. It's about us discovering our own abilities. And sometimes I think, JV, that some of us that are talented, we actually get the attention of these things because they're like, wow, that human actually saw me. Most humans are completely oblivious of me. I think I'll go over and talk to that one. Um, you know, and versus, I think this phenomenon can go the other way and it can interact with a human being and actually change the human being, pull them into that channel that they can perceive. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, once you're touched by this phenomenon, it seems like to some degree you can't turn it off. Meaning, you know, if you're taken to channel 37, to some degree, you know, you have some ability to return there. Uh, via yourself or by help. So um, so that's what it revealed to me. I, I was a student of humanity, and what I found was hum- I think humanity is pretty incredible. I mean, uh, of course, I've sought these people out. Right now I have a, an associate. Her name, she goes professionally by Angel Lee. Uh, when I tell you she's an incredible psychic, for me to say that, because I, I think I'm a better psychic than most some people that say they're psychics, <laughs> and I don't mean that, you know, mean at all. But this woman is incredible. She can, you know, she actually sees things and, you know, she can give you some details that are incredible. So I'm just making that as an example. So um, that's what's exciting to me. You know, of course, it's exciting because I, you know, I want to interact with this phenomenon, the good part of it. And people go, well, don't you think it's negative? I said, listen, rattlesnakes exist and bunny rabbits. Don't you want to learn to discern the difference? Um, you know, if you're exploring in a new area, you've got to pay attention to patterns, you know, make sure, you, you know, the best that you can. You know, I tell my team, if you don't feel right, you got a bad feeling in your stomach, we're going. You know, if we, you know, my whole team about four years ago was out in the woods. We got an entity on our floor cameras. I'll probably be buried with that picture. One of the clearest pictures it's on one of my YouTube channels there. Um, this entity seemed to be signaling to us. Like it wanted our attention. Wow. And we it was it lasted eight or ten minutes before it faded out and you know, we couldn't see it with a naked eye, it was out of our visual spectrum, but our FLIR cameras got it crystal clear and none of us had a negative feeling about that at all. It was it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and what what percentage and maybe it's hard to quantify, but what percentage of the cases that you investigated and talked to witnesses about uh are what I would, what we call real encounters, or maybe even abductions, versus just the sighting of an object in the sky, say. Oh well, you know, with my MUFON work, because I have two hats. I'm the state director of MUFON, and with MUFON, you know, I have strict MUFON protocols we follow. But in my private research group, Parachute Research, I study whatever I want to study. But the reason I'm bringing that up, probably in MUFON, um, we probably explain upwards to 97 and 98, maybe 99% of the sightings that we get in. You know, it's it's a misidentification of a known object. Um, you know, like weather balloons, when they get so high, they implode, and they look extraordinarily, you know, weird and scary. I mean, you know, most of the times we really explain things. So probably I tell my young investigators, you're going to go through 100 cases before you get one that might have some really good meat and depth to it you know, something really extraordinarily strange. That's what we all hope for. So, you know, I tell people a lot of these, you know, um, 
I think sometimes the shows are a little bit misleading on how often these things happen. You know, they just don't happen every single day. Um, that That's for sure. You know, we wait for these good cases and, you know, search for them. But it's common, I think you said, for people, once they have that type of experience, to have other experiences, whether they might not be uh, extraterrestrial in nature or UFO in nature, they might be cryptid or ghost or some other paranormal phenomena seems to uh, start to manifest itself after they've had one of these experiences. That's very true. But an interesting phenomena seems to happen. Um, you know, I'll call it maybe integration of, you know, you know, I'm going to throw out something I have and it's a little more complicated. But, you know, we talked about those channel changes, let's say from channels one through ten. Eventually what happens with people that keep on this path, they start to integrate those channels, let's say one through ten, and instead of switching back before back and forth, they become aware of all ten channels at one time. So these unusual phenomena just start to become everyday things to them, like you and I go into the kitchen and scrambling an egg and oh yeah, there's a ghost standing in the corner, no big deal. So a lot of times, you know, people, they just become habituated to the phenomena, and it's not traumatizing anymore. It's not hurting them, not harming them. It just starts, it starts to become a seamless part of their life, if that makes sense. So, it, you know, it loses some of its shock value, I guess, you know, to the witness themselves. But, you know, I have, you know, tonight I've had probably five phone calls. One man's trying to download a video of an entity said that, you know, he saw. So, you know, things... I don't know if it's, you know, I have a feeling that things are increasing. That's my feeling. People go, well, it's just because of communication. Well, maybe. But it does feel like, you know, things are increasing. So, you know, I'll get one group of witnesses kind of integrated and settle down, and then, you know, a whole batch of new people come in, and they're just dealing with the phenomena um, as it starts to happen to them. Now, other than people being able to perceive more, and as you said, instead of being on Channel 5 or Channel 9, they're on all 10 channels at the same time, therefore mm-hmm. they're perceiving all of this at the same time. Is there a connection between the, the phenomena itself? In your estimation, is there a connection between what we would call UFO or ET phenomena and, say, Bigfoot or ghostly activity? Well, yeah, the connection is depending on what channel you're on. Now, you, you have to remember that. That's important. And again, I'm going to use this as a loose analogy because, uh, you know, let's say for some reason, and again, it's not really Channel 4, I'm just using an analogy, but it seems like the grays show up on Channel 4 consistently. And some of the cryptid, you know, high strange, you know, Bigfoot paranormal stuff shows up on Channel 7 a lot. And, you know, again, there's these different um, areas that, you know, some of this phenomena you know, shows up on, and you have to remember if you're sensitive, you know, what I even work with people sometimes because they're not even aware they're shifting around on channels. And, you know, once they start to take hold of their own abilities, you know, they can kind of, you know, I don't want to go to Channel 4. I'm just, you know, if something bad's on Channel 4, let's not go there. We call that precision, you know, precision in what you're perceiving. Um, You know, some things you can have control of, maybe some things you can't. But, you know, I've, a lot of my witnesses have become very precise at, you know, where they can go and what they can do. And that's what I think is really exciting. You're not a victim. You know, at least most of my witnesses are not a victim to this phenomenon if they take hold of it, meaning, you know, they deal with your fear, they do some studying and research, that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's extraordinary, I think, what's happening to people. I think we're kind of being ushered into a greater world. And I don't mean that, you know, from some, you know, 
loosely sewn um, theory. I've just seen it happen over 38 years. It's almost like this phenomena sits at the edge of human awareness and teases us. Like, come on, people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like it's been there all along. You know, we're just, you know, you know, right at the edge of, you know, joining that galactic empire. You know, I'm romantic about that, you know, so to say. So. The book is called UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. And originally, when I was considering my questions for you tonight, I had uh, put the question, uh, wrote the question down, what do you mean by transforming human perception? But you've already answered that. So now my question is, you've been doing this for over 30 years. You've done a tremendous amount of research, interviewed, interviewed a tremendous number of witnesses. Why decide to write a book now? Well, you know, that's interesting. I have to throw my honey in there. He's actually a country music singer, and he's oh, out wow. on tour a lot. Oh, very cool. And, um, you know, honestly, again, I, you know, this was just, I'm, I have a job in the real world, you know. I, you know, I don't make money doing this. And it's just been, God, I really have to say, you know, it's like I was just built to be UFO girl. You know, people, I think people can, when they talk to me, they they really know, you know, I, they can trust me. I would never betray anybody on purpose. I just want to know, JV, you know what I'm saying? I had this burning, you know, knowledge to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on. And so Dale, you know, he really got onto me, goes, and, you know, you've got all these cases, all this work, you know, and nobody in the world knows anything about your ideas. They're cool ideas. And so I thought, oh, I really didn't want to do it, JV. You know, if anyone's <laughs> written a book, it is. It's a tremendous amount of work. Sure. And so at this point, you know, I really got to thinking about it. And he said, Angie, you really got to do it. So he was, last year, he was out on tour probably six, seven months. And I made myself sit down at my desk and <laughs> say, okay, I'm going to do this and at least try to share. You know, I wanted to share some of my most provocative cases because I wanted people to get really interested in themselves. Not only just the UFO phenomenon, you could we could talk forever. You know, I say you have to put duct tape on my mouth. You know, there's so many great cases to talk to, so many wonderful mysteries, you know, we could explore, you know. But, you know, again, I wanted people to get really interested in what they are possible, you know, able to do um, with the phenomena. Do you think that um, as you studied your cases and maybe even as you w- went back through them in um, preparation for writing the book or as you were writing, did you notice any patterns that you might not have noticed before, specifically any geographic or demographic patterns to the witnesses? Anything that you uh, noticed while you were doing that? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's asked me that, JV. I love good questions. Um, you know, I have to think about that a little bit more. Uh, one thing, I do believe that there are geophysical um, effects, meaning I think there are areas, either high or low magnetic fields, that um, probably um, help alter our perception. Does that make sense? You know, like mm-hmm. if we're in this area, you know, and we're on Channel 4, it kind of pulls us over to Channel 7 consistently. So definitively, I think I've noticed, you know, there's probably certain areas. Um, I've been doing some research. One thing that came to mind, and, and it did come to mind after I wrote the book, is that, you know, my team, we laugh. You don't know, JV, how many nights we set out in the cold, freezing ourselves to death you know, just hoping for something to happen. And I told my team, I said, you know, that's not good science. You know, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So I started, you know, really one common denominator that really stood out is that 
it seemed like that when we had high solar flare activity, all the paranormal stuff would ramp up. Hmm. Well, then I found an article by Jack Scudder, I believe his name is. He was actually sweet enough to talk to me. He's a, a let's see, a plasma physicist. He had been doing some cool work about, um, you know, he's, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm not a physicist, but like electron tunneling, that he did some research that he found that when the magnetic field strength went to zero and there was solar flare activity, um, he would actually notice this phenomena almost like um, the electrons would, you know, he doesn't like the word portal. I'm going to use it, but would, you know, kind of disappear and come back. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, I said, you know, um, have you been able, do you think that could happen on the surface of the earth? And he said, well, at first he said no, but he said, Ange, I did recreate it in my laboratory. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I kind of put two and two together and, you know, everybody's running around with these field meters, you know, trying to find a high magnetic field. Well, I kind of went the other direction. I said, hey guys, let's try to find, you know, some of these weird areas. I'm working with a little paramilitary team down in a undisclosed location and they've been having some, um, phenomena similar to almost Skinwalker Ranch. And so I'm hoping as the weather starts to get, you know, a little bit cooler. The summer, guys, y'all don't realize it's miserable. We have to have snake boots. You know, people don't realize how dangerous it is. You know, right. it's not just UFO and you know, it's other stuff. But we're going to try to, you know, I said I'd like to set up an experiment where we look for, we wait till the magnetic field strength goes to zero and try to look at some time frames where we might get some solar flare activity and let's just see how much stuff kicks up. So that pattern did come out after I wrote the book, and I thought, you know, let's try to set up an experiment and at least increase our odds of being able to experience some of these events. You mentioned Skinwalker Ranch. One of my questions was, what was what are your what's your opinion of places like Skinwalker Ranch? When we start talking about geography uh, associated with occurrence of events, Skinwalker Ranch seems to uh, jump to the top of the list in many ways. Uh, what are your thoughts on Skinwalker and places like it? Well, I, you know, I actually got to meet Travis uh, Taylor not too long ago. We were talking. We didn't get to talk about this. I'd love to be able to talk to him again. I know he's really busy like I am. But, you know, I would love to throw my theory out there on some of those things. I'd like to say, you know, hey, because I think there could be portal activity, and I don't know what other term to use. But, if you know, I think the probably, I, you know, this is just me speculating, but uh I think there's probably areas where I think naturally occurring, you know, portal situations probably crop up. Just like when the magnetic field strength goes to zero, there's high solar flare activity. I would love to see what, you know, the fine would be on that. You know, if we had some great scientific equipment to see if, you know, some of these, you know, paranormal events would kick up during those times. Because I bet you <laughs> it might. Do you think the federal government, we talked about soft disclosure here, but do you think over the course of the years where there was absolutely no disclosure, in fact, in fact, complete denial, do you think the government was playing the role of just uh, a quiet observer or were they a betters to, the, to what was happening? Um, and how does this information pass from administration to administration without more of it becoming public? Well, again, these are, I'm going to say to my audience, these are just my own opinions at this point. I hope educated opinions. But, you know, first of all, I try to put myself in the position of, let's say, someone in power trying to make a decision. And let's say, JV, you and I are in a power position, and our job is we're supposed to protect the public, okay? That's our job. Mm -hmm. We have to protect the public. And guess what? We have these incursions happening daily, monthly, frequently, and we can't stop them. 
UFO comes in here and it can come and go as it pleases, and we can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Are we going to run out and tell everybody that? Right, right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, again, you know, I think there's two sides to a story. I'm not sure if I would. I don't know if I would want to scare everybody to death, you know. Um, so I think there's a there's huge amounts of reasons around, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole, but I think there's a lot of different reasons for some of those decisions. I think to some degree it still can't, you know, be affected, some of it. Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of reasons. Now, why they're changing their mind now, I'm not sure. You know, you talk about administration, um, you know, this probably sounds a little bit cruel, but I said we make progress one funeral at a time. Meaning, you know, if you're not willing to come along and, you know, advance your your ideas about reality and, you know, what we're steeped in, um, then you're going to get left behind. So, you know, as we change administrations, I think probably, you know, even presidents haven't had the whole truth. You know, I think there's probably been all kinds of, you know, other programs running, you know, that supposedly maybe started out protecting and, you know, maybe ended up not so helpful. But I think there's, you know, a tremendous amount of reasons around some of those decisions. So if we speculate a little bit more here, a lot of this conversation is by nature speculation. And we we understand that there is a slow, soft disclosure underway. Do you speculate that maybe they're preparing us for something bigger? Well, you know, that's what, I don't, you know, that's what we maybe want, we hope for. Um, again, in my lifetime, this is the most information I've ever seen released. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a lecture that, you know, quietly, NASA, three years ago, announced a planet that was almost just like Earth, which pretty much is saying that it's full of life. And, you know, that information's out there. I always say it's information in plain sight. If you don't go look for it, you won't find it. So, you know, things like that are, you know, being put out there. And, you know, maybe so. Um, I know that Things are really slow, and it probably should be. Um, it takes, you know, people time to change. You know, probably people listening to this, you know, are saying, well, you know, we're ready to go. But yeah. I think there's a lot of the population that, you know, is not quite ready yet. So, you know, I, I hope so. You know, I think, I think, as long as it's good news, you know, I think probably it will be. But, you know, I think that'll still be hard on a lot of people. You know, it's fun to say, oh, yeah, that you're opposed they probably exist, but they're way over there (laughs) instead of, oh, you know, they really are here kind of thing. So I think just having that that slow drip is probably a healthy thing. Often it's cited that one of the reasons that any kind of real disclosure is uh, slow in coming is because it undermines the religious beliefs of a lot of people. Do you believe that's part of the reason, and um, do you think it necessarily does that? Well, I can't speak for other people. I can speak for me. I'm a highly, highly spiritual creature. And, um, yeah, I mean, just for me personally, I, you know, I believe in a creator and God. And to me, nothing is exempt from creation. I don't, an alien, a rattlesnake, a bunny. I mean, right. um, to me, I, to me, that for me personally, that's not a problem. I, I feel like there's, you know, everything and there's extraordinary. We have a whole, you know, universe to explore um, that was created. So that's just me personally. So, But I'm sure for some people, um, that would probably cause a lot of conflict. The book, again, is called UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. Um, how would you describe the book, Ange, to somebody who 
didn't hear this conversation, but, you know, saw the title and said, what's this about? I would say that, you know, I have put in there probably, I, I can't remember the count, 25, 26 of my most, what I feel like my most moving cases. I tried to give an overall view of some really exciting UFO sightings, events, personal events that happened with my team, you know, sightings with witnesses. So someone reading the book could get a basic overview of all the different types of UFO encounters. You know, just, oh, I just saw a UFO. Oh, no, I felt like I was taken aboard a ship. No, you know, this high strange thing happened to me. So I tried to, you know, just do a broad band of really interesting cases. And then as I, you know, wrote the book, and I presented the cases. I started with each case to put a series of observations about each case for my witnesses to pay attention to. Um, and they were observations of state changes and other, you know, perceptual changes in humanity that were happening, you know, as common denominators in these cases. And so the person can read the book and just have a great time reading about these great UFO cases. And then they can go deeper. You know, they can look at the notes and, you know, see what those common denominators are. And then the last two chapters are about, you know, human perception and, you know, how human perception has changed. I even wrote some little equations in there that, you know, I think are really, I think they're cool because they're actually, you know, an equation on how you change your perception, uh, which I think, you know, people would be interested in uh, to some degree. So, you know, and then if you're not into that, you can, you can skip right through that. So I tried to have just kind of a fun overview. You know, you can have it on your bedside and read, you know, a section each night and it's kind of a different case, a different story, you know, and, and try to make it a little um, adventurous and fun for people. There are a few obligatory questions I need to ask. I ask everyone who um, comes on the program and talks about this particular topic. Forgive me if you've been asked these a million times. Uh, the short answers are going to be fine. But why not, if, if, if extraterrestrials are visiting us, why are they being so elusive? Why not land on the proverbial White House lawn? Oh, well, first of all, um, again, gamma radiation, you can't see it, but it can kill you. You know, again, I think that's a, a very human, and we can't help it, you know, kind of arrogant, not from you, stance, or, you know, in that we think everything is built like we are, and everything perceived like we are, and everything, you know, is, is you know, I, one of my professors said, you know, if you were on the surface of Jupiter or Saturn, you know, you couldn't even see, because gravity, you know, so heavy, it would, you know, bend light so hard, you'd be blind. So, you know, any life form that was, you know, raised on a different planet, a different dimension, you know, I tell people we have probably beings that are in our known universe, interdimensional, extra-dimensional, and then we don't even know what else could exist. So, you know, I think some of these beings are maybe completely out of our, you know, visual and sense auditory and sense sensory realm. Others probably aren't. Um, but, you know, again... Um, Cultural differences, political differences, technological, even a civilization 500 years, 1,000 years advanced, you know, their technology is going to appear to be magic. And, you know, as we know, if an advanced civilization, you know, impinges on a less advanced civilization, sometimes that can be really destructive, especially for the less civilization. So, I, like I say, that slow drip, that, you know, gentle knock on the door, um, I, I think 
you know, go slowly. That That's my take on that. Um, why visit at all? Uh, is this just curiosity on their part? Oh, I think there's a million reasons. Just like there's, you know, I think uh, eventually there will probably be uh, civilizations that are similar to us, that we have great, you know, resources on this planet, uh, intellectual, probably genetic and otherwise, and they would like to open up trade uh, relations if that hasn't already happened. Mm-hmm. So I think just like we trade with other countries, you know, I think people just have to open up their minds to a greater world, what we do with each other on this planet. We trade, we barter, you know, we make deals, we you know share culture, we visit, and, you know, why would they not have the same, you know, um, passions, I would say, or wants and needs than we all do, just on a greater, you know, scale. What's your advice for someone who might be listening, who've ha- who's had an experience of their own and has been hesitant to discuss it? First of all, what do you, how do you advise them to cope with it? But secondly, if they wanted to share that story, story with you, how could they do that? Well, you know, if they're coping and, you know, some people are just fine with it. I, you know, if they're not having any symptoms, it's not worrying them. You know, I go, go on and live your life, live a good life. You know, don't let that slow you down. But, you know, if you just have something that's nagging at you and, um, you know, really it's a burden. Every every um, witness says to me, Angie, it's just been such a weight lifted off my shoulders. All they have to do is go to my website, com, and there's a place to um, make a report and just send me a note. I'll be happy to talk to them. We are out of time. We didn't really get uh, much of an opportunity to talk about your MUFON work. Um, so hopefully we'll get a chance to have you back on the program. But the book is called UFO Encounters, How High Strange Events Transform Human Perception. Angelie, uh, where can people find the book? You can, uh, if you want an autographed copy, some people want me to sign it, you can just go to angeliasheer.com. I'd be happy to get that out to you. And then, you, of course, you can get it at Amazon and on Kindle with Amazon. Terrific. Agree to come back because we have so much more to talk about. Oh, JV, thank you. You, you just—we were a wonderful host. Great questions. I enjoyed myself so much. Thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by JV Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.